The Tom Woods Show, episode 1809. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Anthony Samaroff Week continues with an episode on Marxism, the subject of a forthcoming book by Anthony. And we're going to talk about some of the fallacies and how to handle people who say, well, Stalin wasn't real communism. Or Whenever you try to raise real-life examples of this type of system, it's always that wasn't real communism. How do you handle that? So we're going to have some fun today. Anthony, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Today, we're going to talk about a juicy topic that everybody loves hearing about for some reason. We're not fans of it, but man, we can't get enough of it, and that's Marxism. You've been doing a lot of work on this, and I've read some articles of yours that are quite lucid and helpful and you know easy for a modern reader to understand. Some of the old critiques of Marxism, like for example, if you look at the critique Bombavik had of Marx, mm. somebody reads that in 2020, it's hard for the average person to get what's going on. Mm. Not Antony Samaroff, though, so super. So why Marxism of all topics? Um, that's a good question. I guess when I read Mises' book, Theory and History, I was quite fascinated by his critique of Marx in chapter seven. And I kind of wanted to investigate that further. So I kind of started writing essays on it with that as my starting point. But as I went on, I realized that in some places, Mises doesn't take the most charitable interpretation of Marx. And that was quite juicy to like find out more about that and see. Sometimes when I'm writing these essays, I kind of like see Marx and Mises in a boxing ring. And like I like to take on the, see the world through Marx's eyes. Like how can I make his arguments the most compelling before I then kind of smash them down? And the more I kind of learn about Marxism, the more I think that it's really quite fascinating. I mean, he did create this, a whole system which that you can look through the world. It's a whole wrong system, but it's still really compelling and there's just some really interesting elements in it. So I guess the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write. And uh, if this uh, book ever gets finished, then I think it'll be quite a nice contribution because as you say, it would be good to give people a vehicle that they can read, they can really understand Marx from reading it. It's not going to strawman him and they also get a lot of Mises in there as well and can really understand where Mises is coming from. Of the pieces you've written, there are a couple dealing with really foundational issues, one involving the distribution, so-called, of goods, and the other one, it's not a piece, but a debate you did with Richard Wolff, the mm. famous Marxist, on the labor theory of value. Now, I don't know how you decide which of those is more fundamental, but let's talk about both of them. First of all, I'm curious not just to hear you talk about the labor theory of value, but to know how that debate went, because I forgot about it, so I never had a chance to listen to it. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed the debate with Richard Wolff. I guess we were really speaking about, is it true that capitalists exploit workers? And at the end, he said that he'd be willing to do a follow-up debate, but it, it never materialized. I think if you look at the, the the idea in the Marxist system is that all value comes from labor. So even when you look at what we call capital machines and 
factories and things like that. That's just labor that someone put in in the past, right? So the, the difference between what the capitalist pays the worker and what he sells the product for is considered to be surplus value. In other words, he's just um, skimming something off the top. He's not actually providing any value himself, the capitalist. And that's seen as exploitative. He measures the exploitation as surplus value. Of course, it's a bit of a weird open question as well, because how do you know that the product's even going to sell at the point where you're um, paying your workers? And an interesting thing is, this would exist even in the kind of society that Richard Wolff says that he wants, where workers own their workplaces, because you're, st you're still not going to be able to pay them what Marx considers the full value of their labor, because you're still going to need to shell out for resources and who's going to decide how much production is going to expand or, you, you know, are you going to take a risk? I mean, if you get all the workers to vote, they're going to be risk averse most of the time. And um, most people are only, only a few people, you know, want to go and put themselves in the line and take big risks in life. And that's kind of why we need those more risky people. Sometimes they'll succeed and, and sometimes they'll fail. I think the interesting thing that that leads on to is Marx didn't really have a conception of how production would be organized in a communist society. He seemed to have the view that if you just kick out the capitalists and get rid of them, it'll somehow work out. And we can go on to his theory of history if you, you like, and how he deduced that things would just all work out. Because obviously, famously, Mises said that you can't organize production without prices in the, in the means of production. You did an excellent podcast about that last year, about the calculation problem. Now, I sometimes run across people saying, in fact, I just came across a very, very lefty libertarian saying people today who cite Mises' arguments against socialism just go to show how out of it they are. In the late 1930s, the, the Marxists solved that problem. Uh, they solved the calculation problem. And then he <laughs> turns out he points to a guy who advised the Soviet government. Like he's supposed to have, he solved the problem according to this left libertarian. What do you make of claims that this is an old-fashioned argument you're raising? They, and the Marxists solved that problem. Well, I'd put it like this. Even a baker who has the local information of who comes into shops every day will sometimes have to, will probably every day have to throw out a bag of croissants or chocolate eclairs or brown bread. And then the next day, you know, he'll sell out of those exact items that he threw away. I don't think there can be a solution to the calculation problem because people's needs are changing moment to moment. They're, the amount of information they have changes moment to moment. So how can you predict? So that's just a bakery, right? What about trying to plan that across an entire economy? Even more so when you take this idea of individual units being autonomously run by their workers. If, you know, I could see that working in a capitalist society in a market economy. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with workers owning the workplaces. Maybe if we had a different kind of education system, that would be more common. But the thing is, they've still got the feedback of prices to tell them what to produce, how and for whom. I think that essentially, I've heard people say that the calculation problem has been solved, but more often I just hear that they've not heard, they've, they've never even heard of the calculation problem, less tried to solve it. I want to clarify something because I've encountered after years teaching at the Mises Institute's Mises University summer program that by the end of the week, 
there are still kids who think that the socialist calculation problem means that in a socialist society, there are no prices whatsoever. And so when I would say to them, okay, but if I were in communist Poland and I went down to the store, there would be a price tag for cups and glasses and napkins and food and whatever. I mean, all these sorts of things, um, you know, hairbrushes, there would be prices on all these things. So what's your problem? And that would, they would be stymied. They would have no idea what to say because the point is not that there are no prices for consumer goods. What, what exactly is the, what's, what's the problem of prices in the socialist calculation problem? Yeah, so the idea is that specifically there would be no prices in the means of productions in factories, banks, natural resources, machines and things like that, things that are used to produce goods. Of course, today that's complicated because your personal laptop is now also your means of production. So the line between what's a means of production and what's a personal good is very much blurred. Mm. But say... We, we can't know whether you should use iron, tin or aluminium in producing your product when you don't know how scarce that good is. And, and the way that we find out how scarce that good is, is everyone who wants to make something out of that bids for it, like in an auction, and we get a going rate, a market price. Now, if that particular means of production is wanted by lots and lots of people, that's a kind of way of sorting where its most urgent need is. You know, Mises uses the example of a railway. Should it go through a mountain range? Should they burrow through one of the mountains and create a tunnel? Or should they go around it? And without prices and the means of production, you couldn't, for example, choose the most efficient way of building the railway. That's, that's one of his examples. But it's, it's worth mentioning that Marx didn't just want abolition of prices and the means of production. Marx was a market abolitionist, period. He wouldn't have wanted prices in consumer goods either. Uh, well, that's true. That's, yeah, I guess that's true. And in fact, he was a division of labor opponent, which is, I never understood that, that he, he could, the way he could talk about the way the, the socialist man would, would live his life, not specializing in any one thing, but doing whatever pleased him from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed. So that's e even yeah. the most fundamental institution we have is the division of labor. Yeah, it's quite bizarre in that way. But he saw, he thought that, you know, a factory worker by repeating the same task every day, all day, every day, was reduced to a fragment of a man. And that, of course, socialism would be the system which wouldn't just, would, you know, would cultivate everyone and everyone would be able to reach their full potential as a human being. And the idea is it would be so super abundant that you just presumably go to the store of super, how all this, how all this super abundance was meant to appear is, uh, you know, an, an, an open question because whenever anyone tried to explain what communism would be like, he'd say, no, no, no that's unscientific. You see, you can't actually analyze a system that hasn't come to be yet. What we can do is we can deduce that communism will be better than capitalism. Why? Because uh, capitalism is better than feudalism and uh, feudalism is better than the primitive society. So we can deduce by looking at the laws of history that communism is going to be better than capitalism because it's, it's a more advanced stage of history. Right, now... We could talk about Marx's theory of history, but I think there are topics that are 
at least to my mind, more interesting. I, I feel like I've covered that so much. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I want to instead ask you about the kind of argument that you see sometimes from people today who are sympathetic to communism, who will say, "What's the typical thing they say when they're when they're brought face to face with Stalinist Russia? That's not real communism, right?" And you've written, you've tried to make the argument that terror and totalitarianism are not just strange, unexpected features of of a system gone wrong, but that they are exactly what you should expect from the actual unfolding of the system. Well, yeah, I mean, how, how, to use your term, how are you going to uh, organize production without a market unless it's by bullhorn? Um, Marx talked somewhat about democracy. It's, It's hard to get a clearer view of his view of democracy, because sometimes he's very disparaging of it, and other times he's uh, praising America for being more democratic than Germany. But typically, in his lifetime, there was a bunch of revolutions um, or revolts where small numbers of socialists basically uh, led revolutionary movements, and often against the majority, uh, often against governments which were, which had the support of the majority. And he was always in favor of them because uh, he liked the radical means. He thought that some kind of revolution would be necessary to topple the current status quo and institute socialism. So I guess while Mises was maybe more sympathetic towards democracy, he's always trying to, because it allows for peaceful transfer of power. And the... Marxist system, it's like the the opposing forces in society, because it's quite one of the interesting differences in the way they think is Mises is very like A, B, C. This this leads to this leads to that. Whereas Marx talks about more in terms of tendencies. There's a tendency in this direction for these kinds of things to happen. But the thing is, there can be countervailing tendencies pushing in the opposite direction. And these countervailing tendencies create like a pressure cooker situation or like, you know, the crab gets too big for its shell or whatever. And some kind of explosion needs to happen. Some kind of like revolution needs to happen in order to resolve these, what he calls contradictions. And when he says contradiction, he doesn't mean like a logical contradiction. Like um, we, we understand in philosophy, he's taken that word from Hegel, meaning that there's there's opposing forces at work. and in the Hegelian Marxist view, all contradictions have to be resolved eventually. Why? Um, well, just because Hegel says so. There's no particular reason why these tensions can't last forever. But in the Marxist view, they have to be resolved because Hegel says so. It's not just, by the way, of course, it's not just the, obviously, somebody has to be told to do something in these sorts of economies because they're not letting the market direct resources, so something other than the market has to direct resources. But then, of course, the part where they appropriate the property of the bourgeoisie, yes. unless the bourgeoisie is just going to hand it all over to them, this <laughs> is going to yeah, have yeah. to be carried out pretty viciously, I would think. Yes, and and I, I one of the articles in the book that's, that's um, not available on Mises yet, I kind of talk about that because Marx was writing polemics about the bourgeoisie at the time of these like uproot revolts and revolutions saying, you know, basically they're a bunch of a-holes. And I'm like, 
but Marx, you know, what do you expect them to do? Like, what do you expect them to go? Oh, sorry, yes, like, come on and like take all of our stuff. That's fine. It seems like that's what he thinks they ought to do. But it's worth mentioning, and this is one of the really interesting things, the most interesting things about Marx's system is the idea that the means of production actually not only define society, but that they shape the content of people's ideas. People's role in the social fabric, let's say, preconditions their mind. So Mises calls this polylogism. There's more than one type of logic. There's bourgeois logic and there's proletarian logic. Of course, he never spells out in Bourgeois logic, this means that, but that doesn't make sense in proletarian logic. He, he just says it in general terms. The problem with this is, of course, if you have a different logic from me, there's no way of us settling our differences through discursive reasoning. So some kind of violence or revolution or class conflict is inevitable when we can settle our differences over a over a cup of coffee, do you know what I mean? And explain the logic of our position in a way that will make sense to one another. So, so we're left with nothing but class conflict. Hey everybody, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsor Skillshare, which really represents the very best of what the internet is all about. Skillshare offers thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on topics including illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, entrepreneurship, marketing, and more. Take a look at it for yourself. It's just an amazing site. And the beautiful thing is these classes have normal people in mind. They're not 37-week classes with 10 modules and meeting five times a week. You do this whenever you want at your own pace. And most classes are under 60 minutes in their entirety with short lessons to fit any schedule. I myself recently took a class called Pricing Your Work, How to Value Your Work as a Freelancer by Peggy Dean. And this is a kind of issue that anybody who works on his own has to face. How do I price the things I offer? How do I do so competitively? How do I make sure that I'm not asking for too much or that I'm not selling myself short? It's just a wonderful way to kick off 2021. Do something new. Take yourself out of your comfort zone or take something you love and enrich your experience of it by learning it more deeply. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com woods and get a free trial of premium membership. Check out the thousands of classes available at Skillshare.com woods and get a free trial of premium membership. Rothbard is convinced that Marx never really develops a coherent theory of class, which would be a problem given that the burden placed on that concept in Marx's theory but you're right, this this polylogism thing, what, what a bizarre thing just to throw out there and never really elaborate on. Because, of course, as Mises says, there's no particular benefit that somebody would enjoy by following logic that doesn't take them to correct conclusions. That's, I mean, so, that's such you know? a great point as well. That is such a well-made point. So that part of it is just crazy. Uh, of course... Does Marx ever try or is he ever successful in accounting for how it can be possible that most of the ruling class thinks a certain way, but obviously not every single one of them because occasionally somebody defects and joins the, the proletariat and Marx himself was not part of the proletariat and yet somehow he came to have these insights. Is there any attempt to explain how that's possible? Yeah, um, he he does actually say that um, 
during the stage of revolution, some people from one class will kind of defect to the other. I mean, in the move from feudalism to capitalism, for example, there were aristocrats who were championing liberalism and stuff like that. So uh, also, it's Mises, again, it comes down to the fact that Mises is very like ABC in his logic. He's very thorough and he very much exaggerates Marx's view that um, sort of your class completely conditions you. He takes that as an absolute in Marx and there, there's no absolutes in Marx. There's only tendencies in Marx. So to say that just because you're a worker, you're necessarily going to be a communist is not the Marxist position. And he would attack someone who, who sort of put that absolute position on him. What he would say is, what I, I, I think is more charitable to Marx is would say that there would that would be the tendency, but more importantly, that's going to be the active role in history. So yes, not everyone of the same class has precisely the same ideas, but while you're debating ideas, ideas don't even shape society. The means of production shape society. So you can go on debating and debating all you like, but the laws of history are in motion and ultimately what will happen is, despite your petty squabbles, there is going to be a class conflict because overwhelmingly, you know, there is this class tension. And at the end of the class conflict, we're going to be given to a communist society that's going to be comparatively utopian, although he probably wouldn't have liked the word utopian because he used it as a pejorative to speak about earlier socialist, as, as was meant to be, th th this theory of history is meant to be scientific as compared to kind of like the more flighty utopian theories of the earlier socialists. Do you think there's one root error from which all the problems of Marxism stem or is it just a complete mess? Well, I think in the end of the day, everything he says is superficially plausible. And that's, the, that's why it's had so much valency. Because when you look at something like, oh yeah, of course there's a class conflict because, you know, look, the factory owners are rich and the, the people working for them are poor. You know, you need some decent economic knowledge to demonstrate how this is actually a mutually beneficial arrangement. Also, if you look at the time where Marx was writing, you could say, well, look, liberalism created so much wealth. So that's a, that we, we've seen a sort of, we've seen these bourgeois revolutions where, um, you know, we did away with the aristocracy and, and we let this kind of freedom reign. So obviously society, you know, history moves in stages. People still have, um, you know, what's sometimes called disparagingly a Whiggish view of history, which is that history is necessarily getting better over time. It's, you know, it's quite tempting. And, and the, this idea that, the idea that the means of production shape society, that's the one that I found the most interesting to wrestle with. Because you, could, you can always find examples of ways in which the tools and machines that we use do have extraordinary sociological influence. And why one might actually be given to thinking that, yeah, I mean, I can see, I can see, you know, society seems to be heading in a certain direction, regardless of people's ideas. You know, people feel so small in the face of um, 
the greater forces at work in society, whether those are like um, political, technological, uh, and so forth and what have you. And I think the the risk in dealing with Marxism is that you actually dismiss it as just a big incoherent mess and don't actually see that the ideas that it contains still have relevance today. Even if you take something like Marx saying, oh, you know, the factory worker by repeating the same task over and over again is turned into a fragment of a man or commodity fetishism, the things you own, own you. These are still ideas that have widespread appeal to people today. And they can say, well, you know, someone smart, Marx, systematized those ideas. I don't know Marx inside and out, but I have an idea that he created a system that explains this stuff. So that's why it's, it's really valuable understanding a little bit about Marx and seeing how widespread he is today. I mean, Mises was saying that even though people don't know what dialectical materialism means, it's still the dominant philosophy. That's what he, he wrote in. 1957 that the people have adopted in a piecemeal fashion into their unconscious or into their worldview without even knowing that these belong to the philosophy of Marx. Even avowed anti-communists have absorbed it. And the same is true today. Um, these ideas are everywhere. And so by wrestling with Marx, you're wrestling with the, with the anti-libertarian culture that still exists today. Let me ask you about one other thing about Marx's view of what the future was going to look like. Now, of course, I think Marx had trouble describing the present mm. because he was describing a present in which the working class was worse off than it had been that's right. previously, and I don't think that's the case. But what, according to him... Now, by the way, I'm a historian. I don't have to predict the future. Right. I like being a historian because I'm never wrong. I <laughs> always talk about the past, right? So I, you know, I, I don't necessarily rebuke people for their poor predictions, but when somebody claims to have a theory of history and how it proceeds, well, then I think we could be a little tougher on those people. Yes. How's Marx looking at the future in ways that are right and ways that are wrong? Well, one of the interesting things is, as you mentioned or alluded to, one of his predictions was the progressive immiseration of the workers. In other words, the workers were going to get poorer and more impoverished as time went on. And the interesting thing is, even he had to you know, repudiate and drop that doctrine later in his life because he saw that people were getting richer, not more impoverished. So the problem with that is, so he, he said, you know, okay, well, maybe they don't actually get more materially impoverished, but relatively, they get relatively impoverished compared to the bourgeois class. The problem is that but the, the behind falls out of his theory if you don't have progressive immiseration, because what's going to make the workers revolt? Right. If they're not getting more miserable, Why, how, how is there going to be a class struggle? If they feel like they're getting better off, then there's no reason for them to revolt. And that, and, and precisely that was afforded by his other failed prediction, which is that revolution would take place in the places where capitalism had reached its zenith. It was most developed somewhere like the USA or Britain or Germany. And of course, the revolution took place in relatively agrarian Russia. 
first. So that 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 was another one of his false predictions. Uh, as his life went on, I mean, as a young man, he he thought we were on the cusp of workers' revolution in at any moment. He he became less optimistic that the revolution was just around the corner as he got older and wrote to Engels saying all their dreams had come to nothing and things like that. So um, it, it's quite interesting to see how Marxists today account for some of those failed predictions and, and say, well, you know, the thing is the working class were assimilated into the the capitalist system with their cheap commodities, you know, their their bread and circuses, their cheap phonograph player and their catchy pop music, you know, the Adorno, the cultural Marxist, was very critical of pop, popular music and jazz. And they, they were making the sociological, they continued to make the sociological arguments that capitalism was bad for the heart and soul of man, but they weren't able to continue to say that it made man poor or doomed man to poverty. Right. So what instead happened was the workers did the very thing Marx did not want them to do, which is to work within the system for piecemeal reforms mm. because they were basically content. Because, yeah, the way you describe it, oh, they've been bamboozled by, and then you listed all these amazing mm. comforts of life yeah. that nobody could have imagined before. Yeah, go ahead and bamboozle me too if, if, if yeah. that's what it means. Yeah, and it's sad that we've come to this point in history where our wealth is taken for granted. And it seems to me that these ideas are more popular than ever. And I think that essentially it may, it may really be a sociological problem where people don't feel fulfilled and happy in life and, and they project that onto capitalism. It must be evil capitalism that's making them unhappy. And uh, what we need to do is we need to overthrow the system for a system that cultivates man. But the thing is, Marx only says that communism is going to be an earthly paradise where the self-actualization of, I'm not using his exact words, but more or less he says the the fulfillment of one is the fulfillment of all, or you know, the cultivation of one is the cultivation of all. He never gives us a map of how to actually make this society happen. So I think that it's scary how seductive this this is, and people don't actually stop to say, all right, okay, we might have our criticisms of the market economy, but how is this actually going to work? Like, how how are we going to do it? It just seems like by magic, you know, things will be super abundant and everyone will be happy once we get rid of capitalism. It would be, it would be nice to see an actual plan. Yeah, it would, especially given the upheaval that's going to be involved every aspect of society being remade, but don't, don't worry about it. It's all going to work itself out. <laughs> you don't need to get the details in advance. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I have a, a, a lower yeah. risk tolerance than these people have. I'll take my chances with the market. Thank you very much. Yes, I will indeed too. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. We'll, uh, we've got more stuff to talk about tomorrow and uh, we'll see you then. Okay, thank you. Okay, folks, before we wrap up for today, there's one other thing about Anthony Samaroff you need to know, and that is he is a supporting listener of The Tom Woods Show. How about that? And why wouldn't he be? Who can resist the laundry list of goodies you get as a supporter of The Tom Woods Show? It's unbelievable. Just amazing. Not to mention membership in The Tom Woods Show Elite, the greatest group in the history of mankind, and you don't want to feel like some loser who's not in that group, right? That would be terrible. You belong in that group, 
if you listen to and enjoy The Tom Woods Show. So check out supportinglisteners.com and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.